ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hi there, Waleed Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host as we delve once more, tips on once more, into the minefield, a show where we try to negotiate the moral and ethical dilemmas of modern life. Um, I was trying to think of how we could tantalisingly tease this show, Scott, and uh, it is, of course, Flesh Week mm. on the ABC. This offers, well, myriad teasing opportunities, none of which seem appropriate for a show as... August and refined as this. <laughs> demure. I, I think I, yeah, well, I, 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 I think demure is actually the word you're looking for. Yeah. Possibly, yeah. I mean, we actually, do, are we demure? That doesn't yeah, probably quite not. seem right. Anyway, I, I've decided, I've settled on, we'll delve into virtues of the flesh. Oh, I like that. That's good. Does that work? Yeah. yeah I don't think good. it has any meaning. No, But it, it sounds like it does. Mm. That's a good enough start for radio, I think. Anyway. So I should just explain that uh, in RN, in the Religion Ethics Unit, our fellow colleague programs are devoting from July 8th to the 15th to examining various aspects of, let's just put it, the embodied human condition. That raises opportunities, as you kind of gestured, Waleed, for sort of some racier topics, some slightly more salacious things, maybe some kind of quirky off-ball. One of the things I, I should say that I was really, you know, because I'm a bit of a rebel, uh, because as soon as someone tells me not to do something, I immediately desperately want to do it. Uh, mm. I was thinking about the ethics of grown meat, as in lab-grown meat. Ah, uh, yeah. As in do artificial. Do you want to have a quick stab at that? No, I don't, because I, I want to devote an entire show to it later on. No, it's, but give us a tease. No. Are you for or against? Against. Ah, oh, why is that? Nope. Later show. Oh, come no, on. No, you're Scott. not. You are not. No matter what you say, no matter how many kind of cricket-based forms of torture no, you can. Hey, come up just with. because you were the only one out of tune with the rest of the country, <laughs> the entire country on that out. show. Um, can Can I tell you a story about lab-grown meat? I remember when um, in the Muslim community, mm. forever, these chain emails would go around trying to explain how something that's widely available actually has alcohol in it and you can't have it or whatever, for, you know, for example. Um, so people have been trying to come up with ways to make, you know, Coca-Cola prohibited forever by some thing. It's just this thing that happens, right? Mm. The, the era of the chain email, that sort of thing. Right? Anyway, I remember when one came along saying, um, let's just say a very well-known fast food chicken outlet, um, was doing lab-grown meat, right, rather than it's not real chicken, it's grown in a lab, which, of course, wasn't true. But it's funny because that thing that was meant to disgust you, my first thought was, oh, beauty, it must be halal then because <laughs> there's no, it doesn't violate any of the, I was ready to go. That gives you a sense of how deeply I've been thinking. There, about. There, there have been all sorts of cognate <laughs> debates about the possibility of, say, kosher bacon, for instance. Uh, it's it's ah. really, it's it's interesting and troubling on all sorts of, actually for reasons, interestingly yeah. enough, or perhaps not, that overlap a little bit with some of the points you were making about the difference between rule following versus imbibing the spirit of the game. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. There's something there about about legalism and the point of prohibitions. Uh, uh, anyway. Look out, Scott's finally got I know, the I cricket know, discussion. I know. He yep. finally got there. We are going to do it later. We are going to do it later, definitely. But we want to do something that I think is not just of extraordinary importance for our moment, 
but of extraordinary importance precisely because it's so quotidian. It's so everyday. Uh, There is nothing that is more central to the human condition than the fact of our aging, the fact of our gradual change through time, which is another way of saying the fact of our gradual, steady mortality, that because of our condition as creatures of finitude, as belonging to species that are bound together in their fellowship of mortality, we age. Things happen to our bodies such that who we are is fundamentally an existence that is lived, if we wanted to be really dark about it, we would say uh, in the shadow of death or with the consciousness of death. But I think it's just- Is that in, dark? I don't think it's dark. I, I think it's entirely necessary for, for light. But I don't think, I mean, I, I agree with you, and I want you to say more about that in a second. But well, that's another show. That I don't think, well, maybe. I don't think we necessarily need to associate age, however, with the anticipation of death. Uh, no, no, no. I, to be clear, what I'm trying to say is the anticipation of death should be there from the beginning. Yes, that's right. I think that's right. Yeah. Mm. Now, because of that, however, uh, because this is, if you like, essential to the human condition, this is what it means to be a creature of finitude, uh, the fact that we age and therefore the fact that we, over the course of time, in some ways change, we develop, we grow, but we also eventually at some stage begin diminishing. Um. This raises all sorts of social, of ethical questions. And let me just try to put it this way. When there is so little about our life that we simply accept as belonging to the human condition, this is just part of the state of nature. This is something that is unavoidable in human life. There are very few aspects of human life where we simply give ourselves over to the condition uh, or to, to the natural course of things. We are habitual interveners, are we not? We want to see ourselves... Can I say, I think we're talking here about post-enlightenment human beings. So I'm not sure that pre-enlightenment human beings were habitual interveners in quite the same way. I think that's right. I think that's right. At the very least, I think they had more, ironically, perhaps more enlightenedly, (laughs) a sense of their relationship and their role and their submission to nature. Mm. And I think the idea of nature and natural boundaries as things that are to be conquered, Mm. as frontiers, if you like, um, I think that stems directly from enlightenment thinking. Mm. And we perhaps don't even think about that because we are post-enlightenment human beings, especially living in the West and probably all over the world, actually, given the, the cultural dominance of the West globally. And I think what's happened is we don't even recognize the extent to which we have this, I don't know, imbibed axiom of, of conquering limits rather than respecting them. Mm. So our relationship to death is one of those things. Our relationship to aging is one of those things. Our endless quest for never-ending life. I think I was reading uh, this week about how more and more people are getting past 100 um, because of advances in medicine and so on. It seems, though, that not more people are getting to 110, so there might be a limit anyway. Mm. Um, So there's all of these sorts of things going on, but it's almost like there's unquestioned desire for us to extend life expectancy almost indefinitely if we can. 
without even thinking about what that means and whether or not that's desirable and all those sorts of things. It's a, it's, it's a sort of, if we can do it, we should do it. And of course we can do it sort of attitude. Let me, let me bring you back. I, I think that's all right. That, uh, sorry, I don't mean that's all right, but I think that's all correct. Let me bring you back, though, to, I think, an associated phenomenon that we don't often associate with aging and our war against aging or our war against finitude, but I really do think is closely bound up with it. Um, it seems to me that one of the central human projects of, say, the last 140 years has been to substitute the phenomenon of or the, the reality of our creatureliness and by by that i don't i mean i don't mean anything sort of you know theological or even metaphilosophical about it i just mean the fact that we are creatures of finitude that to some extent we are born into and we inhabit systems and forms of relationship and networks that we did not choose but with which we are entangled we are bound together so much so that we share a common fate uh, we bear one another's burdens. And I don't just mean other human creatures of finitude, but our fellows in, in finitude. So this is part of what it means to say, you know, we, uh, we creatures of the earth, we creatures of finitude, we fellows of this, of this planet. We've been raging, I think, for the better part of 140 years, possibly even more than that, against our condition of creatureliness. And what we've substituted that for is the desire to be the products of, say, auto-creation. We want to not have our fates, our lives, defined by what came before us or that into which we were born, but we rather want to create ourselves. We want to be agents in our own realization. And I know that's going to sound very, very strange, but l let me just give a, a very simple example right up to what might even seem to be a farcical example, but I think it's an example that is far more pertinent and far more widespread than we might think. Um, as you know, Waleed, I mean, I've brought him up several times on this show, as a political scientist and former cosmetics executive. Uh, he's now a parliamentarian in the European Parliament named Hervé Jouvin, a wonderful, wonderful uh, French philosopher, who wrote this remarkable book in 2005 called L'Evénement du corps, uh, The Coming of the Body, The Arrival, or The Imminent Arrival of the Body. One of the things that he kind of sketches out in that book, and it's something I find wholly persuasive, is that the real divide that runs through the human race now isn't between races or gender or sex uh, or nationality. It's now between those who are able to be the objects of their own creation versus those who still languish in a state of nature. Those who are able to, for instance, choose their scent rather than be given over to natural smells and odors. Those who are able to choose their own hair or lack of, and those who simply are overgrown with hair and therefore are somehow more bestial. Those who are able to care for their teeth, uh, their eyes, who are able to indulge or engage in cosmetic surgery. Those who are able to indulge in, say, body art. Um, I mean, isn't body art, of all things, isn't tattooing, kind of the ultimate expression of our desire to be our own creation, to mark ourselves with our own stamp, with our own brand, mm. uh, versus those who are simply given over to warts and moles and pimples and all sorts of other things. In other words, there are those who have control over their skin, their hair, their scent, their body, and those who are, let's just put it straight, slaves to their skin, their body, their hair, who don't 
have the ability to exercise that control over it. Um, that seems, and that also, I should say, plugs into a much longer historical tradition, a, a kind of terribly racially and in some respects even religiously tinged tradition that separates hair removal with civilization and hair growth with barbarity. Um, so there are all sorts of things that are going yes. on. Mm-hmm. No, go on, go on. I get the general direction of travel in this analysis, and I I don't mind it. I think there's truth in it. It just feels too extreme, too vastly overstated for mine. Are you kidding? Um, really? I, are, are you kidding that I'm kidding? Yeah. Really? So you don't you think this is too binary? I'm not saying this is the way things are. I'm saying this has become an increasingly pervasive, let's call it cultural sediment. This is something that's ended up settling down on the way that many advanced societies live. And it's one of the Mm -hmm. established forms, I think, of contempt. We see some people as being in control of themselves and other people as being enslaved to themselves or to nature. We see some people as being able to dictate their own smell, appearance, beauty, or lack of, and therefore those who give themselves over to hair growth, to slovenliness, to uh, lack of upkeep, um, these become, if you like, their own fault. They've got nothing to blame. Yeah, I I think it's the hair growth bit that gets me a bit because, of course, hair growth is immensely fashionable as well. In certain times, in certain ways, in certain places, yeah. this changes over time. Yeah, it, what, it, it does, but also, about, but also sort of hair sculpting. So there's all the difference. Yeah, okay, yeah. So it's the manicured elements. Of That's it that right. That, yeah, I, I think I can see that. But I would also say that the idea of um, grooming, I suppose, if you want to, is that the right word to use here? I mm-hmm. suppose it is. Sure. As some kind of, or having some kind of connection to virtue is an ancient one. And I don't think has always been strictly limited to class differentials, for example. It's not as though poor people could never find a way to groom themselves. What has perhaps changed is that the process of grooming and the tools that you need to do it have become more and more commercially elaborate. Mm -hmm. And so it's to groom in a particular way has become expensive or out of the reach of certain people. And there's certain status associated with that, right? So to be able to have your eyebrows sculpted in a particular way requires professional attention, which requires money, which requires, et cetera, or, um, you know, the accessorization of parts of your body, even with, you know, clothes or handbags or whatever, I don't know. Um, This sort of thing requires a certain specialization and attention rather than the basics of you can keep yourself neat and present yourself to the world in a particular way. So I can kind of see that something has changed in that way. But I think the thing I would like to observe, and maybe this doesn't actually contradict what you're saying, the thing I would like to observe is at the same time as this is going on, all of it's actually a lie. Yes, I and agree. You recognize that at certain times of crisis, right? This is, this is one of, I think, the great moral echoes of COVID was how lacking in autonomy human beings actually were. That's exactly right. That's right. And, and watching something like a virus, uh, yeah, I know there were class differentials and racial differentials in how many people died, et cetera, et cetera. But so many people who were in hitherto privileged positions 
where they felt in control of everything suddenly lost control. Mm. Some of them would have lost their businesses. They were locked down for periods of time. They got deathly ill. They, they died as a result of this tiny little thing that they were incapable of seeing. And there was something about all that that I think revealed to the human being the mirage of the control that mm. they're in. And I do wonder if that's part of the reason that so many people... I don't mean to say this is the entire reason, but I think it's part of the reason that so many people were so psychologically rocked by this mm. and have found it difficult to cope with. I, I would love to know whether the ancients would have been psychologically rocked by it in the same way or they would have received it as, yep, this is this is life. <laughs> this mm. is the, the cycle of things. In other words, I think our sense of perhaps a cultural sense of entitlement made this so intolerable. Yes, that's right. To us in a in a unique way, like in a particular way. The, pan, so the pandemic, I mean, while tragic, while horrible, while disproportionately felt, was also the expression of our fellowship in mortality. Yeah, and then we tried to undo that a little bit, I guess. Mm. But, it, but there was a certain truth to it. Health has a habit of doing that. Even as we sort of try to reassert the inequalities of health through access to good health care and so on, which is true within societies, but really noticeable, you know, beyond society, once you look at it internationally or globally. So we do that. But at the same time, there is something profoundly equalizing about health. Mm. Um, can, I just, yeah. can I just point out, though, I don't think we actually disagree in, in any way. What I was trying okay. to describe before was a prevailing cultural condition, which I see as profoundly dangerous, fundamentally illusory. We are creatures. We are creatures. There, there's an extent to which we intervene in our lives. But this kind of wide denial of the conditions of our finitude or the extent to which we can be our own creations, I think there's a deep moral problem with that. No, nowhere more so in many respects than when it comes to aging. I don't know if you remember, Willie, but back in 2018, Emil Rattelband, uh, who was, well, at that stage, a 69-year-old Dutch uh, self-help guru, television personality, do you remember he filed a lawsuit to have his age reduced legally? Yeah, I do remember that. By 20 years. The reasons, I'm, I'm so sorry, I, I found the reasons adorable. Uh, so he said on the one hand that he, this is part of his campaign against pervasive cultural ageism. Tick. Great. Yep. But then he said uh, this will also help him enhance his romantic prospects online. Quote, when I'm yep. on Tinder and it says I'm 69, I don't get an answer. When I'm 49, with the face I have, I'll be in a luxurious position. <laughs> So the face I have quote that's part. So yeah. what's wonderful about that? I mean, it seems, I mean, he was the butt of all sorts of jokes. His lawsuit was denied. Was thrown out. He was also making, a, I think, a claim against transgenderism, right? Uh, he wasn't making a claim against. He was seeking, an, for many people, an illegitimate extension of the same principle. Uh, I thought part of what he was saying there was a critique of it. No. So to say, well, in the same way that age is a fact, so is biological sex, and so you can't just subjectivize yourself into a different position. No, he, and if you do think that, then you should accept it. I thought that was the way. He no, was. he was he was using that as, as an opportunistic argument uh, to try to bolster his case right. rather than... Okay. Yeah. anyway, yeah. go on. Uh, but what's interesting there, I mean, while that sounds extreme or even farcical, there is an extent to which the idea that we don't have to be our age permeates... Western cultures. 
we express it externally by not wishing to look our age. And we could do that by any number of either sort of high or low things from changing one's hair color through to cosmetic surgery, let's say. Mm -hmm. But then there's also the whole phenomenon of not feeling one's age or claiming that one doesn't feel one's age. I might be this, but I don't feel that old. And there's even research into the basis of or the phenomenon of a lower subjective age to one's chronological age. Now, what I find so interesting about that is that both expressions, which are entirely everyday, not wanting to look one's age or claiming that one doesn't feel one's age, both of them tend to associate age as a phenomenon, as, a, as an aspect of the human condition, as something that is not desirous, something that is associated with diminishment, with therefore decline, with the onset of all sorts of terrible things from uh, obsolescence to weakness to uh, being a burden on others. And it, it's just striking to me that in so many of the ways that we accept forms of, let's say, uh, cosmetic modification, or let's even put it a little bit more kind of distastefully as cosmetic deception. I don't want to look how old I am. And the forms of, let's call it, I don't necessarily want to call it self-deception, but the the claim that I know that this age ought to associate me with the following defects. But this isn't how I am. This isn't who I am. I am something I'm other free than of those defects. I'm yeah. free of those defects. These are both various forms, I think, of our desire to effectively choose our age, to deny mm. or defy the whole aging process, or to say that it's not necessary, it's contingent. Yeah, except that the choice that people want to make about their age is almost unanimously in one direction. That's <laughs> so, right. Yeah, so there's questions about in what sense exactly is it a choice? Or to what extent is it a response to more or less ironclad imperatives within our culture? So it's the celebration, the lionization of youth that makes this a desirable move to make, right? Very few people would say, I want to be old. The only people who say they want to be older are kids who are six yeah, that's right. and feel they have no autonomy, right? <laughs> and so they want to become adults or, very Or kids who are 15, 16 and want to buy alcohol at the corner store. Yeah, yeah something like that. Yeah. Um, so that that's kind of the only thing. At the same time, though, I think this is worth noting. At the same time, people get pilloried for not acting their age. Yes, that's right. Right? That's right. So if you are, I don't know, in your 50s and you're wearing the clothes of someone in your, their 20s and going to nightclubs or whatever, people will look at you, both 50-year-olds and 20-year-olds, will look at you like you're sad, mm. right? and they'll disparage you. So there is a kind of, at the same time as there's this constant imperative to to youth, there is also an inherent disdain for those right. who seek to escape it. I don't quite know what to make of that, except perhaps that the best way to understand it is that there is an imperative for youth, and the person who seeks to reclaim youth when they're past it is actually trying to usurp They've moved past the point of cultural potency, yeah, of relevance, and now they're trying to reclaim it. And that's actually the bit. Yeah. That it's it's not that they're refusing to grow into their wisdom, because we don't attribute wisdom to age, really. Anymore. Not a, yeah, not in a broad cultural way. It's actually that they're trying to claim a relevance and a power that they that's illegitimate for them to claim. Mm. See, here's my thing. I agree completely with what you said. We want to bring in our guest. Let me 
put my thesis to you, though, that how we regard age, the process of aging, depends on what it is we value most in a given political community or in a particular human society. So if you value restraint, wisdom, self-givingness, the acquisition of knowledge, the ability to understand the world and to act well and justly within it, then you'll see age as something where you acquire the various skills that you need to grow into the fullness of the human condition. If the thing that you prize most is virality, vitality, autonomy, sexuality, sleekness, self-creation, then you will see the onset of age and the relative diminishment of certain human capabilities as the loss of those things that matter most. In other words, it's the culture that sets Mm. the tone, that sets the hierarchy of values, and then the extent to which age moves towards what matters most or moves away from what matters most. That's what makes us categorize age uh, as either something that is to be at very least honored or embraced as part of the human vocation, not just part of the human condition, uh, or that sees uh, the process of aging as something that is essentially something to be regarded with either contempt yep. or without right fear. So I think that's exactly right. I think there are one or two caveats to that, and that is that age always has and probably always will connote a loss of certain things like strength. Mm-hmm. And that seems to have been a universal value system. So the idea that you are physically robust yeah. or strong, this seems to be valued, I think, in societies that revere the elderly just as much as those like ours that don't seem to. Sorry, um, sorry Waleed, what's interesting there, though, is that even the Greeks, the Greeks and the Romans who kind of overturned the older culture of Asia Minor's uh, valorizing of age, the honorifics that were associated with aging. I mean, Greek and Roman mm. culture effectively overturned that, and they praised sleekness and vitality and strength and youth and the beauty of the young mm. body. But for even them, what you lose in strength, you gain in capacity for conversation. Um, but, yeah. Sure, sure. But this is kind of my point, right? Is that it's not as though everything you value is embodied in aging or is embodied in youth mm. and you choose. There are certain youthful attributes, perhaps even youthful virtues, that can be celebrated even as aging is not something to be disparaged or is something to aspire to. But you're right. Kind of what we're talking about here is there are some cultures that are more orientated towards what you might broadly call the inner and some that are orientated towards what you might call the outer. And I think the more outer you are, the more youth matters and the more inner you are, the more age is something to be celebrated. I think, was, is it the Taoist idea that one of the reasons you should hope for a long life is it takes that long for you, for your soul to be purified. Mm, it takes right. that long for you to reach a kind of state of spiritual excellence. And if you have a short life, you have less opportunity to reach that. It's because you're cultivating that over a long time and it takes 70 years or it, it takes 80 years or whatever it is to do that. And so youth actually in that way, is kind of an impediment. You haven't yet had the opportunity to realise these higher elements. This is such an alien way of speaking. We would never talk that way really in our culture, except in perhaps some subcultures that would be deemed quite weird. Mm, True. But not this show, Waleed. Not this show. No, well, not this show. But that's because this show is weird. 
Yeah, it's weird. Um, let's get to our guest, shall we? Our guest is Tracy Gendron. She's professor and chair of the Department of Gerontology at Virginia Commonwealth University. She's also the director of the Virginia Center on Aging, and she's the author of Aging... Sorry. And she's the author of Ageism Unmasked, Exploring Age Bias and How to End It. Tracy, thank you so much for joining us on The Minefield. I am delighted to be here. So where do you want to take us? Oh, my gosh. Uh, I, I kind of feel like maybe we should start with lab-grown meat. I mean, I don't know. There, there was a lot there. there. There was just so much there that was like, wow. All right, let me start here. So I think, you know, some of the things that are really interesting to me about listening to your conversation is first how we really define with a value youth and old. If you really just take a step back and you think about how we use those terms, you know, you were talking about youth as being a very desired state, one of vitality, one of fitness, one of relevance, and old being more decrepit and old being more irrelevant, um, unimportant. And I, I think it's important to first recognize we have given those terms value, but when you actually look at the definitions of old and young, they simply mean shorter live and longer lived. So I think first is kind of putting some perspective around some of this language to help us understand how we got to this point in time when it comes to this, this preference that we have for youth over older age. And then the second thing that I, I wanted to kind of bring up is really having a working definition of aging. Because aging is much more than most people think and much more than people give it credit for. In gerontology, we define aging as the biological, psychological, social, and spiritual process of change over time. That change is multidirectional. It's obviously multidimensional. But multidirectional means at the same time that we are experiencing loss, we are also experiencing growth. We are also experiencing maintenance. We are also experiencing adaptation. And I think what's really challenging when you're talking about aging and becoming older is that we're holding two competing truths at the same time. How can something be about both decline and growth? How is it that we can lose certain things but gain other things along the way? And I think that's part of the reason why it becomes much easier for people to just label it as good or bad, because it's really complex. And it's very hard to wrap your head around the complexity and the nuance. But the truth is, you know, you were talking about this mirage of control. And I very, very much agree that not only COVID exposed that, but that's very much what underlies much of ageism is the fear of death, is the fear of loss of autonomy, is the fear of loss of agency. And it is kind of couched within that whole mirage of control. So... That's the starting place. I think that there was there was just so much that you brought up. Well, I think what you're saying there about how there is growth at the same time as there is constriction, I suppose, is true. And I think underlies the point Scott's making about it therefore depends on the pre-existent values that you bring to your contemplation of these things. Do you value the things that grow with age or do you value the things that shrink with age? And so we make these sorts of calls. I wonder, though, whether or not the bias towards youth, however you want to define it, and I take your point there, Tracy, about how exactly we would define it, but 
however you want to define it, if we accept that broadly speaking there is a cultural bias towards youth, how much of that is the product of our communication systems? So I think of, for example, media. You could throw social media into the mix as well for obvious reasons because it's, you know, new technology and so on and so it favours youth in a certain way and youthful forms of communication. But let's just even keep it at traditional media, even academia, publishing and so on. These are all ways in which we construct our culture and the values around which our culture grows. And when I think about them, they are all, at least in their current mode, they are all communication methods or, or subcultures or, or, or whatever that prioritise the novel. So in popular culture, something tends to be celebrated because it's new, or because it's different. In highbrow art even, you will laud an artwork because it's doing something that hasn't been done before. What is it that makes news? Well, it's that which is novel. When something happens every day, it becomes less and less news. I thought about this recently with the whole, um, what's the submersible? Is that what it's called? That went out to find the Titanic mm-hmm. and there was all this, mm-hmm. and people were comparing it to the, the refugee boat that sank and so on. I don't want to get into that debate, but it occurred to me as a thought experiment, if people were dying in submersibles looking for the Titanic every single day, it would eventually cease to become news. There's a, there's a bias in news towards the novel, even as news broadcasts over time tend to repeat. <laughs> it's the sense that something is novel. In academia, what is it that's likely to get published in a journal and be celebrated? It's something that says something that no one has said before in a way that we find compelling. You tend not to be celebrated merely for replicating truths that have been established before. Even if those truths are more significant uh, and important to keep a hold of, there's a bias towards the novel. Uh, You get what I'm saying. Perhaps the only thing that is moving in the opposite direction seems to be film at the moment, where it's all remakes and it's all extensions of established franchises, but that's for commercial reasons. At the same time as streaming, which is where so much of the audience is going, is pushing in the opposite direction. So when you have a culture that's built on novelty, and even a culture that's built on entertainment, it has to become youth-biased, doesn't it? We, we simply have no way of celebrating constancy. We have no way of celebrating the growth of wisdom over time. We have no way of celebrating the eternities as opposed to the times, if you see what I mean. And so what could age possibly have to offer in that context? Yeah, I think there are examples of, of cultures, though, that do celebrate age and that do um, really look for the markers and the milestones and the opportunities to, to celebrate wisdom. Unfortunately, we don't have that in, in Western culture. You know, we have not built our culture around that. And whether that is because of novelty or whether, in my opinion, it's because of neoliberalist capitalism, Um, where we ask ourselves, you know, who benefits from this? Who benefits from ageism? Who benefits from having us obsessed with youth? And if you follow that down, you see that there are many industries who greatly benefit from this. So are, are they the ones that are directing this message so that we kind of fall into this trap, this never ending pit of needing to buy products and supplements Um, and services to keep us looking, acting, feeling youthful. So perhaps it's novelty, perhaps it's capitalism, perhaps it's a a lack of understanding of how we celebrate later life. Perhaps it's a lack of understanding that 
there are no normed expectations for later life. So we have milestones at the beginning of our life that we can all follow. We know when we're going to walk. We know when we're going to talk. We know when we're going to have solids. We don't have that in later life. If anything, we become less like each other and more like ourselves. That's also kind of harder to wrap your head around, if you know what I'm saying. Can I, can I ask you, though, Tracy? I mean, I think that's absolutely right. I wonder if what it is that you and Walid are gesturing at, though, is a great underlying fear, precisely because it's a product of our culture, namely mm-hmm. the fear of obsolescence. We worry about things reaching the point of uselessness and needing to be replaced. We worry about ourselves reaching the point of uselessness and needing to be replaced. We worry about ourselves becoming effectively useless to the people around us. It just strikes me, I mean, everywhere I look, that that idea that our time is coming to an end, the period of our usefulness or the period during which we might be admired or found as having something to contribute, that everywhere we look, we're we're in a kind of vortex of transience where things are going away and things are taking their place. And we're terrified, increasingly, I think, of being caught up in that same vortex. Yes, beautifully said. I think that is absolutely correct. And I think when you look at how we have built our cultural structure around older age, um, at least in the U.S., we really talk about it around this idea of retirement, right? And so talk about ending your, your contribution, your usefulness. That really is like a finite time that says, okay, now you no longer contribute in the same way and you are just someone that takes rather than someone that gives. So I think we've literally like built the structure for that obsolescence without having an alternative for people to say, wow, older people really do have so much to contribute in a variety of different ways. It doesn't have to be economically. It can be within families. It can be as mentors. It can be, you know, a whole number of things, but we lack the structure and the understanding because we've built it around something very different. But can I suggest to you both, and you may both want to reject this. If so, please, by all means. It does strike me that there are seeds or there are remnants or or there are echoes, at least, of a different way of thinking when it comes to the way that we sometimes use the word late uh, or even final to describe. I mean, Shakespeare's plays, for instance, his late plays are often characterized, we think here especially of, say, something like King Lear or The Tempest, as being the expression of all that he gained and gleaned and so was able to then express. Um, I was incredibly moved uh, earlier this year watching the great Italian pianist Maurizio Pellini at the age of 80 performing Beethoven's late sonatas. And even though he had performed them, recorded them several times as a younger man, I wouldn't say the fluidity was there. I wouldn't say there was the same kind of raw energy that he often brought. But I would say that there was a truthfulness that he could only bring when he had reached that age. We often talk about actors. Um, you think of someone like, say, Meryl Streep or even Brian Cox, delivering a performance that was an entire lifetime in the making. So there are those times, aren't there? There are those 
aspects are, yeah, I mean, one of my favorite examples is the two recordings that Glenn Gould did, uh, one at the age of 22, one at the age of 51, just months before his death, of Bach's Goldberg variations. One kind of manic and fluid and virtuosic, and the other one, the only, again, the only word I can find to describe it is true. There's something there, isn't there? There's a kind of remnant. I realize all the examples I've given are kind of high culture, or except for films. But there is something there, though, that we still prize, we still value those, is it right to call them performances, that seem to be a lifetime in the making and the recognition that there is a kind of knowledge that can only be gained and there is a truthfulness that can only be acquired through the process of that change that you described before, Tracy. Yes, absolutely. Yes, I agree with that. I think those are very salient examples of people building their skills over their lifetime and then becoming their true unique version of themselves in which they can give that performance, in which they can write that masterpiece. Yes, that is the culmination of your whole lived experiences. And and yeah, I absolutely love that. But isn't it telling, Scott, that none of those examples really is norm setting. So when I think about the things that shape culture, none of what you mentioned comes to mind. No, it's true. Even the Meryl Streep performance, which would be closest. When I think of what shapes culture, so, all right, you've spoken about classical music, but what's the most common refrain you get in popular music? I like their old stuff better than their new stuff, right? Um, Would you agree with me that with even the great acts, the great bands, for example, that have been around forever. Like Queen. Their best album is usually around maybe their fourth to sixth, something in there. The odd one has their best album is like their second, occasionally their first. It's very rarely their 23rd. You don't really ever hear that. Why? I think it's because they are operating in a cultural environment. It comes back kind of to the novelty point, but where there is something vital and essential in there and the reproduction of that doesn't work. It just, it becomes boring and derivative rather than something that's increasingly mastered. Even as, and I've lost count of the number of times I've heard this from popular musicians who I'm interviewing who might be now in their fifties or whatever, even as they insist, this is the best stuff I've ever done. Mm. No one seems to agree with them when they say that. Some of that's just, you know, aesthetic, they're no longer youthful. That means you don't go on whatever the equivalent of Top of the Pops is now. It's probably something on social media. They're not relevant. They're not in the the zeitgeist in the same way. I think the only difference, though, the only difference, Waleed, I mean, Queen here would be the ultimate example of a band that sort of peaks a little bit too early and then it's harder to find the quality later on. Well, I'm going to dispute you on that. I know, I know. But they they become less audaciously creative. Yes, okay, yes. They they become a massive commercial success. Okay, but that's, that's the point. If you take Pearl Jam, I would say, for, I'm so sorry about this, Tracy. I, I would say, for instance, <laughs> that Pearl Jam's earliest stuff, I love Pearl Jam, but it was performatively nihilistic, which essentially is what grunge was. If you take Bob Dylan's early stuff, I love Bob Dylan's early stuff, but it was skin deep. It was performative. It was superficial. He was trying to find the right mask to wear. Okay, but let me ask you what's celebrated. Okay, yes. But then, if you think about I, I would say, for instance, Pearl Jam's truest album is probably Backspacer, which was their sort of, what is it, seventh, eighth. I would say that Bob Dylan didn't really find a voice that was authentic until Blood on the Tracks, and he probably didn't find his voice at all 
uh, in other words, being able to speak truly about himself and for himself until his late 50s, early 60s with a song like Red River Shore. Um, so, I realize that they're commercial successes, but if you think about going from performance to authenticity, if you go from superficiality to owning one's voice, I mean, that surely is later rather than earlier. Yeah, but only if it's a voice that remains culturally relevant. So you can own your voice, but if the world's moved on to different voices, different sounds, different textures, different approaches to music, different whatever, and that's just music, right? Then it almost doesn't matter if it's truer. You might think it's truer, but as far as cultural imprint is concerned, because we're talking here about attitudes to ageing based on the value system that undergird a culture. Mm. As far as that's concerned, what matters is cultural imprint. And that in the popular arts, in what I would call the culture-forming arts, culture in the sense of mass culture, and the values that surround that or are embedded within it, what almost always matters is the earlier stuff. I, I've been interested to see the new Mission Impossible film has come out, and one of the things that's so interesting about some of the commentary I've seen is people are marvelling at Tom Cruise, not because he's moved into his truer performance, mm. but because he's 61 or 60 at the time of filming, and he's still able to do these stunts. And he wants to do it till he's 80. Great. All power to him. I hope that happens. But but what he would be doing at 80 would be remarkable precisely because he's not behaving the way an 80-year-old is meant to behave. He's behaving the way a 30-year-old or 40-year-old maybe is meant to behave on film. That's the value system. So the fact that you have to go to Shakespeare or you have to go to classical music in order to make this argument in a way that, that is compelling or sustainable, I think only underscores the nature yeah, you may be right. of the cultural bias. Mm. Tracy? Yeah. Um, the cultural bias runs deep, and I appreciate the conversation. What I keep thinking is, to me, it takes me away a little bit from where I see kind of action items and points that an everyday person could kind of latch onto. Mm. So, yes, it's important that we talk about this from music and from film and from, you know, the larger cultural influences that we have. But what do people every day in their lives kind of do with this? You know, going back to that kind of control piece, we do have some semblance of control over our environment. And if we force change, if there's enough kind of mass buy-in for something, then eventually other layers change with it. Policy changes, products change, the culture changes. So do we look to the outside to make this change or do we start to build capacity of people to think about aging differently, to think about later life differently. So I think that's what I'm struggling with a little bit as I'm listening to this conversation. Because there, I, I get the examples on both sides, but for the everyday listener, hmm. what can they do with this? And can that's I ask you a question I'm about that, from. Tracy? Because you mentioned neoliberalism yeah. before. I, I think we could broaden this out to liberalism generally. I suppose my question would be, does liberalism have the capacity to do what you... Uh, suggesting. It seems to me that aging is something that you can prize when you have a value system that extends beyond the accoutrements of pleasure in this life, right? And the accumulation of pleasure. When it becomes about something more than autonomy. Because as you get older, you do in certain obvious ways become less autonomous. You might become enriched, but that can only work within a culture where enrichment is valued because there's some broader telos. 
the, the enrichment or the wisdom or whatever has to attach to something. So it seems to me, to put this in sort of very concrete terms, the celebration of ageing and of the wisdom and perhaps even moral perfection that comes along with that is so much easier to make durable in a religious setting than it is in a secular or an irreligious setting because the frames of reference are different. Liberalism isn't necessarily atheistic, but it kind of pushes society a little bit in that direction because it, it wants to curtail the frames of reference to things like autonomy and, you know, the good life is kind of defined mostly in a material way, even if not explicitly. It turns out that way over time. So does a liberal society have the resources to celebrate whatever it is that ageing offers? Can I ask a clarifying question? Why why do you think, talk about, you know, growing older as inherently being less autonomous? Can you share your thinking about that? Well, I just said in, in obvious ways it does, right? You're, you're more physically constrained than you were. You might become, depending on what age we're talking about, intellectually less sharp. You are less able physically to just direct your life in particular ways. You're probably earning a bit less. You, you know, there's certain kind of just very top-line things where people would say, I'm less able to impose my will on the world than I was when I was at the height of my physical or financial capacity. Then mm. I don't know if I agree with that. Because, mm. you know, I think of there are people who have limitations and disabilities at all ages and throughout their entire lives. I don't know if they would qualify themselves as feeling less autonomous. I also think that there's people in older age and later life that feel freer of constraints than they ever did when they were younger. And there's gerontological theory to go along with that, that they actually feel more autonomous because they feel more uniquely them. They don't really care as much what other people think. They actually have very high quality of life despite having physical limitations. I think mm. that's something we're putting on that, an assumption we're making that actually is not true. Yeah, I think what I'm saying, though, is that they are liberal assumptions, aren't they? Like sure. I, that's kind of my point, is that, w- sure. that when you begin within the framework of liberal society, that's kind of what you see through the lens. Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. So I'm curious, Tracy, one of the, uh, in your recent book, Ageism Unmasked, you do make towards the end of the book what I thought was quite an extraordinary conceptual coup by undoing many of the ways that we tend to think for ourselves about aging as inherently being bound up with a kind of decline or diminishment, and thinking about it instead almost as the assumption of or the resumption of a kind of vocation that's appropriate to a particular period of life. And you call it elderhood, which I found captivating. Can you just explain to us what you mean by that and what you think the significance of that kind of reorientation might hold out? Yeah, absolutely. So as I was sharing before, I think that we have built much of our knowledge and framework about later life based on this concept of retirement and and a withdrawal from society. And I think that there's a lot of power and purpose to be thinking about later life as another stage of development. We think about development throughout our entire lives from infancy and toddlerhood and childhood and adolescence and adulthood 
And then we don't have a full understanding or a way to embrace development later in life. Not to say that elders are not adults, they are, but what if we saw that there were different opportunities in later life, different ways that we can grow, different ways that we can give back? Um, and I think elderhood is a strengths-based term that really captures that for me. And until we have a term to really describe it, we won't have the resources put forth to be able to study it, to be able to understand it, to be able to put a structure around it. So I think the language is important to kind of delineate the path forward. And, and I love this kind of strength-based idea of elderhood as something that we continue to grow into. You know, there's a great quote by Anne Lamont um, that talks about, we are all the ages that we have ever been. And I think that's what I see elderhood as the culmination of. So we're still the 10-year-old inside of us. We're still the awkward teenager who's, who's you know, working to overcome things. We're still the 20-year-old that feels adventurous. And then on and on, we have all of these versions of ourselves that we don't lose. We just continue to convoy. We just continue to kind of stack on. And then elderhood brings all of those pieces of us together in very unique ways and in very individual ways that allow for that freedom of expression, that allow for the freedom of individuality. And I just think there's a lot of power with that. Tracy Gendron's book is called Ageism Unmasked, Exploring Age Bias and How to End It. She is Professor of Gerontology at Virginia Commonwealth University and our guest for this week's edition of The Mindfield, which is now at an end. Tracy, thank you so much for joining us today. We could keep going on thank forever, which is a wonderful sign, I think. Thank you for having me. All right, we're done. See you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.